0: Thanks again for tuning in to the Maritime History Podcast. Our episode today is Episode 6, Khufu's Solar Ship, or Sailing into the Afterlife. It may seem a little strange, but we're going to start out this episode with the story of a pyramid and the secret that it held for over 4,000 years. As you might suspect, that pyramid is none other than the Great Pyramid at Giza, a monumental structure built during the reign of the 4th dynasty pharaoh Khufu. Before we can get to the story of that pyramid, though, let's see just how Egypt got to the point of being able to build such an amazing structure. At the end of our last episode, we had seen Egypt's development up through the beginning of the 1st dynasty. Accuracy at this early period is difficult, but it's safe to say that Egyptian pharaohs didn't begin their pyramid-building ventures until the beginning of the Third Dynasty, when Djoser built the Step Pyramid at Saqqara, the first successful monumental structure to be built using finished stone. Although we can tell that the Step Pyramid began as a traditional rectangular mastaba, the builder Imhotep continued by adding more mastaba-shaped steps, gradually decreasing in size as they rose higher to give the structure the pyramidal shape that's instantly recognizable today. Interestingly, Djoser's royal vizier Imhotep was one of the first recorded architects of ancient times, and among the dozens of titles held by Imhotep was that of Overseer of the Pharaoh's Shipyard. After completing that first true pyramid, the Egyptians continued to hone their building skills. By the end of the third dynasty, the pharaoh had become solidified as the sole focus of Egyptian life. Building the earliest pyramids had also allowed the pharaoh to establish what was essentially a command-controlled societal structure. After Imhotep, the vizier and various other administrative heads became commonplace and the pharaoh used them in conjunction with the religious establishment to direct every facet of Egyptian reality. This command structure was feasible thanks to the early system of national taxation that was implemented in Egypt, in which the pharaoh played a ceremonial part as we saw with the following of Horus in our last episode. That event was recorded on the Palermo stone, a fragment of a stele known as the royal annals of the old kingdom of ancient Egypt. The Palermo stone records the significant events of pharaohs in the first through the fifth dynasties, so it can serve as a useful reference point for our discussion of early Egypt. In that time span between the first and fifth dynasties, The Palermo Stone records multiple pharaohs, each going on multiple tours, to conduct their census and to tax the people. What would cause the people to submit to the pharaoh so easily? And what eventually led to the point where an entire city would spend the lifetime of a pharaoh preparing his monumental grave for him? Both of these phenomena can actually be explained by the growth of Pharaoh's place in the religious trappings of Egyptian society. Obviously, the Pharaoh had no qualms about participating in an enterprise that elevated his status from that of a leader to that of a god amongst men, and the Pharaoh actually played a large part in promoting the growth of his religious role in Egypt. The genesis of this pharaoh-as-god idea can be traced back to the unification of Egypt, when the second pharaoh chose to assume a title that combined the names of Nechbet and Wajet, the vulture and cobra goddesses of Upper and Lower Egypt, respectively. This move symbolized his ambition to solidify his place as the lone ruler of a unified Egypt, with the goddesses of both halves his protectors. Additionally, though, this early combination of the pharaoh's image with that of the gods ultimately led to the situation outlined above. The people were glad to serve him because he was the go-between to the gods that kept the country unified and prosperous. The pharaoh was the key to upholding Ma'at, the Egyptian perception of truth, justice, and order in the cosmos and in Egyptian society. Enough of the development of Egyptian society, although again it's an amazingly intriguing topic. I think we've sufficiently laid the groundwork to understand the accomplishment that the 4th Dynasty pyramids really were, so let's now meet the 4th Dynasty pharaohs and discuss their shipbuilding ventures. The first pharaoh of the 4th Dynasty was Sneferu, and the title he adopted as pharaoh both indicates the scope of his ambitions and it succinctly proves our discussion about the pharaoh functioning as a god and focal point in Egypt. Sneferu adopted the title Netjer Nefer, which literally meant the perfect god. Quite the claim. Anyhow, as I said, Sneferu set out on a pyramid building campaign that had to that point been unthought of in Egypt, not only in terms of the number of pyramids, but also in terms of their size. Sneferu is remembered as having been responsible for the Bent Pyramid at Dasher, the Red Pyramid, and the Meidum Pyramid. A large part of his ability to build these pyramids was because of his relationship with other nations, and when I say relationship, I mostly mean that he conquered the other nations. The Palermo Stone, again, describes Sneferu as being responsible for the building of Tuatawa ships of merwood of a hundred capacity, and sixty royal boats of sixteen capacity. The Palermo Stone also tells that he was the pharaoh who oversaw the hacking up of the land of the Nubians, and the bringing in of seven thousand prisoners, men and women, and twenty thousand cattle, sheep, and goats. Most important for our purposes, though, the Palermo Stone also tells how Sneferu saw the bringing of 40 ships of cedar wood, sometimes interpreted as ships laden with cedarwood. Either way, this description is seen by many historians as a reference to the land of Lebanon, or Byblis as it was called in ancient times. Old Kingdom Egypt had some ties with Beblos, and I hope to take an episode or two in the future to look exclusively at the civilization of people that we now call the Phoenicians, a civilization that played a larger role in the later period of ancient history into the period of classical antiquity. The last thing I'll mention in connection with Sneferu is the belief that he was responsible for the first boat in history that was christened with a name, a 100-cubit cedarwood boat that is, in some interpretations of the Palermo Stone, named the Praise of the Two Lands, another nod to the pharaoh as the unifier of Upper and Lower Egypt, the two lands being referenced. So, as we've seen, Sneferu got the ball rolling on the 4th Dynasty Golden Age of the Pyramids, but it was his son Khufu who built the Great Pyramid of Giza, one of the Seven Wonders of the World, and the item of focus in this episode. Before we get into the specifics, I'd like to try a little imagination experiment to help paint the visual picture of what Giza would have been like at the time of Khufu's death. During his life, he oversaw the building of the Great Pyramid, along with the entire pyramid necropolis at Giza. And what we tend to picture in our minds today when we think of the pyramid there is really a far cry from what an Egyptian would have seen on the day that Khufu's body began its journey to burial in Giza over 4,000 years ago. Imagine with me, if you will, that we are on board a cedarwood ship docked in the ancient capital city of Memphis. The ship is about 140 feet long and has a high vertical point to the prow and a stylized arching stern. While there are priests and nobles manning the oars, the oars themselves aren't actually being used. Our ship is being towed downriver by a smaller vessel. The priests are symbolic, as is the ship itself, because the main occupant is the pharaoh Khufu. His body occupies the main cabin, an enclosure of cedar wood that would completely shield the pharaoh's body from the outside world. As our ship is towed down the Nile toward Khufu's pyramid necropolis at Giza, the pyramids on the plateau grow larger on the horizon. Recently completed, their white limestone casing stones glisten in the glaring sunlight, We reach Giza and make for a canal shooting off from the main body of the Nile. Were the river at its height during the flood season, we could make directly for the valley temple, but since the Nile is in its low season, a canal is connected to the temple gateway into the Giza necropolis. We dock at the valley temple, and the ritual which has already begun moves into the next phase, the preparation of the pharaoh's mummy. This process will take 70 days, after which a funeral procession will carry the mummy of Khufu up the causeway that connects the valley temple to the mortuary temple at the foot of the Great Pyramid. During those intervening 70 days, however, the ships on which we journeyed to Giza will be systematically disassembled and carried up the same causeway for a burial of their own. Now, if we'd been able to tell Khufu that his grave and mummy would be looted not long after they'd been sealed, but that his funeral ships would remain hidden for millennia, I think he may have changed his burial plans just a little bit. Unfortunately for him, no advice from the future was shared. His pyramid, though, has been a fascinating draw for explorers and adventurers since the earliest times. A 9th century Muslim ruler famously oversaw tunneling that hacked into the pyramid face, a dig that is cited as the first recorded time that explorers reached the king's chamber, but it's also clear that even in the 9th century, they weren't the first to have made it inside the pyramid. Khufu's grave had already been robbed, and we actually haven't even found Khufu's mummy to this day. Fast forward a thousand years from that dig, to the famous, and probably apocryphal, stories of Napoleon's Night in the Pyramid, and we still see the aura of mystery that surrounds the Giza Necropolis. Our final jump forward through time brings us to 1954, a year when the Egyptian Antiquities Service had drawn up plans to clear away much of the rubble that had accumulated around the Great Pyramid. Over the decades, archaeologists had been excavating the numerous tombs that were scattered around the Pyramid Necropolis, and the best place to dump the debris was at the foot of the Big Pyramid. Well, as you can imagine, sand began to pile on top of the debris, and over time sand dunes began to build up against the lower reaches of the pyramid itself. This was the problem that the Antiquity Service set out to correct. Work was slow, and they couldn't risk bulldozing their way through the rubble and inadvertently destroying whatever may have been overlooked by earlier explorers. Despite their painstaking clearing process, though, by 1954 they had reached the final stages of the project and had found nothing of interest whatsoever. Then, in the spring of 1954, they got down to the limestone bedrock of the plateau, and began to discover limestone slabs which, while not a major find, were at least something. The slabs were part of a wall that once encircled the entire pyramid, sealing it off from outside entrance except via the mortuary temple where Khufu had been prepared for burial. The existence of the wall was already known before 1954, and the discovery merely confirmed the assumption that the wall had originally extended entirely around the pyramid. I have to confess, though, I left out one crucial fact, and it's a fact that should jump out in the mind of anyone familiar with the ancient Egyptian architect's penchant for symmetry and exactness. While the three previously known sides of the wall had all extended along the pyramid's base at the exact distance of 23.6 meters from the pyramid itself, this fourth wall was built five meters closer to the base—a fact that was perplexing to everyone except the leader of the project, a young archaeologist/architect by the name of Kamel El Malak. His previous experience at other pyramid sites led him to the conclusion that this wall had been built closer to the pyramid because it was intended to conceal something that lay buried beneath the plateau's surface. As Malak tells it, he had long been fascinated with the boat pits connected to other 4th dynasty pyramids. Five empty boat pits were found carved into the bedrock outside the mortuary temple to Chephren's pyramid also located on the Giza Plateau. Boat pits were also present at other 4th Dynasty pyramid sites, not to mention the three empty boat pits that had already been discovered around the base of Khufu's Great Pyramid. Malak's workers continued uncovering the unique wall that ran along the Great Pyramid's southern base, and as they got down to the bedrock, they made a shocking discovery. The wall was built atop a layer of compressed rubble and mud that made up a plaster-like surface. Even more shocking was Melek's discovery that under the plaster surface was a mixture of cement-like mortar that had been used as a binding agent by the Old Kingdom Egyptians. The mortar discovery beckoned for further exploration mostly because it was laid down in a thin line that ran perpendicular to the pyramid and to the enclosure wall. This mortar began on one side of the wall, ran underneath the wall, and emerged again on the other side, a configuration that indicated one thing to Melek. Something was buried underneath the wall that required mortar to keep it cemented together. Within the same day of his discovery, Malek's workmen had uncovered two huge limestone blocks that ran perpendicular to the wall. One by one, they uncovered more, until they'd eventually unearthed two gigantic sets of limestone blocks, laid out in a row, and divided into two groups, 40 stones in the western group and 41 stones in the group to the east. The two groups, when viewed from above, resembled the keys of a dilapidated piano, laid out in a row, and divided in the center. The final piece of the puzzle that prodded Malak into obsession with the find was a cartouche carved into one of the blocks, a cartouche bearing the royal name of Jephre, Khufu's son and the third in line of the fourth dynasty pharaohs. Despite his personal feelings that the find was of paramount importance, Malak struggled to gain the service's consent to continue the digging. Initially, they dismissed the find as only being part of the pyramid's foundation, unworthy of further examination. Malik wasn't one to take no for an answer, and I'm certainly glad that he wasn't. After bugging the service repeatedly, they finally granted him grudging permission to drill one hole into the eastern group of stones. So on May 26, 1954, that's just what he did. The going was slow, The dig proceeded at a responsibly cautious pace, chinking away at bits of the massive stone because the workmen feared splitting the stone and causing it to crash down on whatever precious treasure, or lack thereof, lay concealed beneath. After digging down two meters below the surface, they reached a rock ledge. We now know that this ledge ran the length of each side of the huge pit, and had been hewn out to serve as a shelf for the massive covering stones to rest on. Upon reaching this ledge, Malek knew that they were close to breaking through, and he took over the digging himself, slowly chiseling away at the last few inches of rock to uncover a pitch-black expanse below. Years later, recalling the day he broke through into the historic pit, Malek described the moment this way, I closed my eyes, and then with my eyes closed, I smelt incense, a very holy, holy, holy smell. I smelt time, I smelt centuries, I smelt history, and then I was sure that the boat was there. His premonition was spot on, for indeed a boat was there, and not just any boat, but a boat that's among the oldest and is inarguably the largest and best-preserved example of a ship from ancient history. Before we get there, though, it's worth mentioning that Malak's piercing of the boat pit set off two events. First, it set off a firestorm of national, even international interest. However, it also set the clock ticking on the preservation process, since ancient wood couldn't last long after being exposed to the deteriorating elements. Only days after Malak bored the first hole into the pit, a photographer for Life magazine stuck a camera down through the hole and took one of the first photographs of what lay buried on the outskirts of Khufu's pyramid. In the foreground of the photo, one of the ship's pointed oars lays atop the neatly stacked planks. In the background, at the far end of the pit, the bowsprit of the ship juts out above the pile of pieces which have dust and debris strewn across the reed mats that cover them. It was a historic photograph, and one which really didn't indicate the magnificent ship that would emerge from the combined pieces that lay buried for so long. The task of assembling those pieces fell to the antiquities service's chief restorer, a man named Ahmed Yusuf Mustafa. But Hag Ahmed, as he is called, was forced to wait until the pieces could be removed from the pit, and the process of removing them in a safe manner took several months. A giant shed was erected around the pit, and cranes were used to remove each of the limestone covering slabs, weighing 14 tons apiece, making their removal no small feat. As each one was removed however the team had to replace it with a similar sized wooden block wrapped in waterproof cloth so as to keep the moisture in the pit and prevent the wood from warping 6 months after the discovery the last of the stone blocks was removed but it would be another full year before hag ahmed could begin removing the ship's pieces and preparing them in the restoration shed that had been constructed nearby by late June 1955, he was able to begin the painstaking process of removing each piece one by one. From the beginning, Hag Ahmed stuck to his process of cataloging each piece as it was removed. He took photographs of each layer as it was removed, making a composite photo of the layer so he knew exactly where each and every piece had been laid by the men who buried it over 4,000 years before. Hag Ahmed began to notice the logical sequence with which the pieces were arranged. Appropriate preservation measures were taken to ensure that nothing was lost that could be saved, and after two years of work, the pit sat empty. In all, it had yielded 1,224 individual pieces, from the largest of the planks and the bowsprit down to the small decorative details that graced the cabin structure. With the pieces laid out in his workshop, Hag Ahmed set about the process of reassembling the ship that was originally intended to be reassembled in the afterlife, if at all. It's important to appreciate the fact that before the discovery of the Khufu ship, almost nothing was known about the internal structure of Egyptian boats and ships. Herodotus makes passing mention of the fact that Egyptian ships didn't have internal ribbing, but some historians dismiss that as another of his instances of playing loose with the facts. What it came down to for Hag Ahmed then was that he had to assemble a complete Egyptian ship with the aid of only exterior depictions from other ancient Egyptian sites and the manner in which the pieces themselves had been arranged in their burial pit. As he began the reassembly process, Hag Ahmed saw repeated markings on many of the individual pieces. Four specific markings kept reappearing, and it's now thought that these four denoted the relative quadrants to which the specific piece in question belonged. On a smaller scale, most of the pieces bear one of many symbols that were probably affixed as directions for where exactly the piece fit into the ship as a whole, though the sign markings haven't been studied in any detail. The Egyptian instruction markings give us a good segue to talk about the major difference between the Khufu ship's construction technique and that of most ships that are common in the world today. The modern method is to start from the inside of the ship where a keel is used as the base for a skeleton of ribbing supports, to which planking is then attached. The Khufu ship, like many ships of the old world, was built in the opposite manner, starting from the outside and working inward to a strengthening framework without ribbing support structures. This method is often referred to as the shell-first technique, or the edge-joining technique, both names that are quite literal. The builders would start constructing the hull or the shell of the ship by joining unevenly shaped planks together at their long edges, working toward the hull shape that's typical of a boat. The Khufu ship in particular has a flat bottom piece rather than a single keel. The ship's edge-joined planks are also prime examples of the ancient technique of using a mortise and tenon to lock planks together. In this case, the long edges of the planks had slots cut into them, and the planks were locked together by inserting a tenon, which was basically a small wooden slat that sat in both slots equally and kept the planks from slipping. If you've ever put together furniture from Ikea, then you can probably picture what I'm referring to. But if that description didn't quite do the trick, then be sure to check out some of the diagrams that I'll post on the website page for this episode. Anyhow, all the planks were secured by these mortise and tenon joints, and reed matter was placed between the edges of the planks to serve as caulking. Since reeds would expand when wet, they worked perfectly as a tight water barrier once the ship was in the river. On the interior side of the hull, a wooden support batten, basically a wooden rod that was flat on one side, was run along the inside seam of each plank edge. Each plank then had V-shaped holes cut into the interior edge at regular intervals. The holes themselves didn't pierce completely through the planks, but they allowed the builder to further strengthen the plank joining because they could feed rope through the holes that ran perpendicular to each plank edge, and they could tightly secure the wooden support battens along the seams. Again, this is a little bit hard to describe, and probably hard for you to picture, so I'll post photos of what this would have looked like, because photos really are worth a thousand words. The design of the Khufu ship was quite ingenious in practice, because once the boat was placed in the water, the wood would swell, and the lashings along the inside structure would shrink, tightening the bindings even further and keeping the ship watertight for a pleasure cruise on the Nile. Well, actually, no pleasure cruising for Khufu, since the ship was his funeral barge, probably. But you get the picture. The construction method of this ship, and likely all early Egyptian ships, was also extremely practical, at least in one sense. The edge-joining methods they used required nothing to be permanently fastened together, so a ship could easily be taken apart, carried across dry land in a train of pieces, and then reassembled to be put back into the next body of water. Some historians suspect that this method was used by the Egyptians who ventured out into the Red Sea. And in an upcoming episode, we'll take a look at the plausibility and the archaeological evidence that's been found to support this theory so far. Back to Khufu for now, though. The sheer size and complexity of this ship is difficult to describe, and I'm probably not doing it justice, so if you want to read more about the ship, I'll post a link to a fabulous book detailing the entire story of the ship's discovery, reconstruction, and the theories behind its origin. The book is available on the Boston Museum of Fine Arts website in a fabulous library of Giza materials that they've made freely available to the public, so certainly stop by the MHP website if you're interested in that link. The last big thing I'll mention before we get into the theories proposed for why the ship was built in the first place is an idea that I touched on last episode. It's the idea that even after the Egyptians began building wooden ships, they still purposefully sought to evoke the style and shape of their first water vessels, the papyrus reed boat. The Khufu ship is a perfect example of this, as the curving ends are beautifully like the papyrus shape. We can see this homage to papyrus not only in the ship's silhouette, but also in the small decorative details of a papyrus bud carved into the ship's cabin columns, or also in the imitation rope bindings of a papyrus reed raft that we can see on the ship's prow. This ship, then, was constructed with an eye toward tradition, and few traditions are as closely tied with ancient Egypt as are its religious traditions. We must ask the question, then, what religious mindset drove them to build such a majestic ship, and why would they use it only once, and then bury it forever? That's the indication given to us by the evidence, by the way. Rope markings on certain parts of the wooden pieces indicate that it was probably submerged in water for a short period of time, allowing the wood to swell and the ropes to leave impressions on the wood. The reason for the Khufu ship's construction and its religious significance are the subjects of much debate, despite my intimations earlier that it was the one-time funeral barge for Khufu. I personally think that this theory lines up well with our other understandings of how ancient Egyptians depicted the afterlife. So let's take a look at those depictions, and you can decide for yourself what your opinion is. Our earliest written evidence of the Egyptian idea of the afterlife comes from what are known as the Pyramid Texts. These texts were found inscribed on the inside of Old Kingdom tombs and sarcophagi dated to the 5th and 6th dynasties. Their detail and their extensive use in royal and noble tombs seems to lead to the conclusion that these texts must have been in existence for at least some period of time before they were written down, much as oral traditions have always led to a written tradition. Thus, we can make a safe assumption that most if not all of these religious concepts, were in the Egyptian mindset at the time that our pharaoh Khufu was buried in Giza. How did the pyramid texts line up with the Khufu ship exactly, though? Let's take a look. We've already seen in the podcast episodes about Egypt that the Nile and its cycle of annual inundation shaped the terminology of Egypt's religious expression, and the pyramid texts give us a first glimpse at how the water factored in. The pyramid texts were inscribed on the inside of a pharaoh's tomb to serve as directions for his dangerous journey into the afterlife. In the early Egyptian depictions, heaven was separated from the earth by an expanse of water. Upon dying, the pharaoh's path to heaven lay across the water and the man to get him there was the ferryman in charge of the transportation. Now, those of you familiar with Greek mythology will no doubt note the similarity to Charon, the ferryman of Hades who carried souls of the newly deceased across the river Styx and Acheron into the underworld. In the pyramid texts, utterance 263 references the two reed floats of heaven that are placed for Ra, that he may ferry over therewith to the horizon. Utterances 300-311 through 311 describe the ferryman and instruct the pharaoh that in order to gain passage on the ferry, he needs to know the names of the ferryman himself and the parts of his boat. Although later iterations of the Egyptian afterlife evolved from this earliest written depiction, the theme of water and journeying through the afterlife via boat remain consistent. For instance, the coffin texts of the Middle Kingdom moved toward a subterranean conception of the afterlife, ruled by Osiris and fraught with peril. This underworld was called Duat and was filled with lakes and rivers to be navigated by boat. With these two places, heaven and Duat, we are brought finally to the Egyptian story of the sun god and his perpetual journey from light to dark perhaps the underlying commonality in the different Egyptian views of the afterlife throughout their history. The sun god, eventually called Ra, was said to travel in a boat of millions, so called because it needed to contain all the gods and all the souls of the blessed dead. In some later books depicting the underworld, Ra travels in two boats. As he traveled across the daytime sky, lighting the Egyptian world with his brilliance, the manned jet was his ship. But when he descended below the horizon and into the underworld, the Mesektet carried him through Duat to emerge again onto the morning horizon. This idea that the soul of the pharaoh could join with Ra, that the pharaoh might even be Ra himself according to some, This idea is what some have said is the best explanation for the two boats found next to Khufu's pyramid. Two boats, you ask? Well, yes, two boats. Remember earlier in the episode when I mentioned the discovery of two sets of stone slabs in 1954? The eastern pit yielded the Khufu ship that we've just briefly glimpsed, but the western pit was ignored in the intense focus on the Khufu ship's discovery. It wasn't until 1987 that an electromagnetic radar survey revealed the existence of a second boat in the western pit. In that same year, archaeologists drilled into the pit to insert a tiny camera and take photos of the wooden planks laid out in an organized fashion. It wasn't until just recently, though, 2008, that a team was able to raise over $10 million to dedicate to the restoration project. In 2011, workers finally began removing the covering stones, and even then it took another two years before the boat began to be removed from the pit. Only a year ago then, in June of 2013, removal began on the roughly 600 pieces that radar scans had revealed were present in the western pit. So yes, the second ship is a bit smaller than the first, and experts expect the restoration process to take at least another four years. However, the discovery of this second ship has bolstered those who feel that the Khufu ship was intended to carry Khufu into the afterlife. After all, two ships were needed, one for the day and one for the night. And if anyone would know how to piece a ship back together, instructions included, it would be the sun god and his pharaoh, wouldn't it? Well, that's all I've got for this episode of the Maritime History Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, and as usual, if you are curious about what the Khufu ship looks like, how it was constructed, or any of the other items that were mentioned, check out the Maritime History Podcast website for a selection of pictures and source links. Also, if you enjoyed the episode and want to support the continued creation of maritime history for your ears, consider supporting us at our Patreon page or by leaving a review of the podcast on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.